When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludicrous. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holler at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. At State Farm, we're committed to uplifting black futures. In collaboration with organizations like 100 Black Men and National Urban League, State Farm provides high school students with the opportunity to learn and apply best practice strategies for saving and investing, all while offering academic support, life skills, and exposure to college access programs to prepare these students for life after high school. Check out 100blackmen.org and nul.org to donate and learn more. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So I'm at Widening and uh, working on basketball, and there was an opening for the account lead on mm. basketball. So I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be my shot. Should I'm about only to be get promoted. one person. Exactly. Yes. I'm the only brother in here. I've been doing all this stuff. And they bring in a white guy oh, from outside and make him the head of the account, mm. and I have to work for him. Mm. Say less. That was the first time something like that had ever happened to me. Mm. I wasn't as mature about handling it. <laughs> My name is Datavio Samuels, and welcome to The Black Print, where I sit with the innovators, disruptors, and change makers, laying the groundwork for the next generation of cultural leaders. This is the Black Print. Yes, sir. Fresh off of cans, man. Yes. How was that? So good. Was it good? So good to get out and yeah. see people again. Yeah, so yeah, good yeah. to see you again. It, man, it's so good to see you. It's um, We started building relationship during quarantine, right? Yeah. And so um, have been able to connect. But this is our first time actually connecting in person, which is dope. That's right. That's right. Thank you for making the time to be here, man. I'm so excited to be here. Good. Sit down with you. I should be interviewing you right now. You've done so much <laughs> in your life, man. No, I'm, um, I'm so excited about um, your story because I think your story has so much commonality with so many of the people that I run into, you being um, someone who is creative um, innately, like someone who sees themselves as a creative, who fashions themselves as a creative. And I think you've had this really interesting journey exploring so many different ways to get your creativity out um, and making money and make a living for your family, right? Which I feel like is the is the challenge for so many creatives. When I talk to creatives often the times, I'm like, there's only two choices you can you can pick. Either you're gonna try to be Kahindi Wiley, which is like one percent of people get to be Kahindi Wiley. If one percent. If one percent, right? Yep. Which means you're making what you want, you're making a ridiculous amount of money doing it, you've got complete creative control and freedom. And then the other one is you go work for business. You right. lose some of that creative freedom. You get a lot more stakeholders, but you get the stability of a paycheck and the opportunity to feed your family. Right. And I feel like your journey shows us kind of how you played in all of those options and then landed where you landed. So Absolutely. super excited about this conversation. What's dope about this conversation is I think a lot of people know my story, but mm. not a lot of them know it the way we're about to talk about mm. it. You know, there's a lot of things left out. 
because they just want to talk about the highlights, yeah. but not really talk about the lessons. Yeah. So I'm excited, man. Let's dig in. Dope. Let's find the gems and the lessons. So first thing first, um, I think the world of you, I think of you as marketer extraordinaire. You've done so much creative work for the culture, but for the audience, if you can just tell them who is Jabari. So much of what we talk about is controlling our own narrative, telling our own story. So when Jabari talks about Jabari, what are you doing right now? Who are you? Wow. That's a big question. Yeah. You know, right now I'm the SVP of marketing at Westbrook Media, yeah. really trying to build a brand, not just a studio, not an agency, but a brand mm -hmm. out of our entertainment property um, and bringing all of my other brand marketing contacts into the story. But um, I think that we're trying to change the game in entertainment, mm -hmm. really, much like what you're trying mm -hmm. to do. And I feel like we got a great platform to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you are now working for um, Will Smith, one of the most notable names in hip hop, one of the most notable names in culture. Let's rewind it all the way back to the beginning, right? So this is Jabari growing up in Chicago, right? And doing my research, right, you are growing up in an era where hip hop is starting to pop, right? It absolutely. seems like hip hop played a big role sports played a big role. Talk to me about young Jabari. What was he into? Like, um, so many people are not used to a hip hop that is not dominating. Like we grew up in a world where hip hop was not dominating global oh. culture in the way that it is now. Absolutely. Like what was it like to be at kind of the beginning of that kind of ascension? Oh man. Well, growing up in Chicago, you know, you really had to work to get into the culture, right? Mm -hmm. So LA, New York, I kind of had what was going on. So in Chicago, we had, you know, DeBrat, you know, oh, yeah. Kanye come out of that. So we had some roots in hip hop, but I was at the music stores. I was at the record stores. I was at, you know, Blockbuster Video. Yeah, looking the record store. People don't even remember record stores. Do I have to explain <laughs> what record stores are? It's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> um, even like the, you know, getting into college days where we had the, the used CD stores. Like I was a music head growing mm. up, you know, and my dad had me listening to all the old school stuff, Motown, Lionel Richie, Anita Baker, Prince, Michael Jackson. Right. Um, and so I was able to blend that sort of old school soul mm. R&B vibe with me trying to understand what all this hip hop was about. So I was coming up when, you know, LL's first album was coming out, oh. you know, um, and because I was the only child that became my world. Mm. You know, I was, I was spend, you know, road trips with my parents in the back with my headphone, my walk, you remember Walkman? I, yeah, I gotta explain what a Walkman is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with my Walkman, just listening to the, all the old school stuff, trying to remember all the lyrics and really trying to envision the world that they were painting for me, mm. you know? Cause I grew up born in Chicago, um, in the city, but I quickly moved to the suburbs as my parents started to get more wealth and mm. more uh, move up in their, in their careers. They wanted to move me out of the city. Right. So I had grandparents in the city, but then started to grow up in the suburbs who really started to shape who I am, my identity and how I show up in the world. Mm, and you were big in the sports back then, too, right? I was. Okay, you know, I grew up playing. Doing? I was an athlete, so I tried to play as many sports as possible. But basketball was my thing. If you if you grew up during the Michael Jordan era in right. Chicago. Right. Then there you were trying to be Michael Jordan. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, like, I literally modeled my whole identity after Michael Jordan. Mm. You know, I was I didn't drink. I didn't do any drugs. I was staying on the straight and narrow. I've studied his moves. I tried to, uh, I, I wanted his smile. Mm. You know what I mean? And after Ken, as a matter of fact, I think I got his complexion. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so it, you know, him is, you know, then all the other greats, you know, Magic and all yeah. of them um, were just all over my walls. And when I think mm. about where I am today, I'm like, I think 
that a lot of those posters that adorn my wall really inspired me to mm-hmm. be in the in the industry I'm in today. So let's jump off of that. What was young Jabari at that moment in time dreaming of? What did young Jabari want to be when he wanted to grow up? Young Jabari in the suburbs of Chicago, listening to hip hop, trying to be like Michael Jordan. Bruh, like what was crazy is I didn't have anybody to paint a picture of what I could be ahead of me. Mm-hmm. So the only person I looked up to was my dad. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be him. You know, my dad, uh, worked for the Environmental Protection Agency in Chicago. He would wear a suit every day to work. He had a briefcase. And so I would see him getting up and I would go to work with him sometimes and he would walk through his building and people would be like, hi, Major. Hey, man. Everyone would know him. He would know the janitors to the front desk people to the secretary to everybody would know him. Right. I would be like, wow, (laughs) this dude is kind of like Puffy is today. Right. Like like I wanted to like be him in that world. And he had a secretary with a typewriter and I would play on the typewriter. So I didn't know anybody that played college basketball. I didn't know anybody that got a hip hop contract. I didn't know anybody that went to the NBA. So my, my sort of sights, there was no internet. Mm. Yeah, crazy. Uh, there was no internet back then. Um, so my sights on what I could be were very limited. Very limited. So I was, but I had a wild imagination, you know, so I would draw, I would try to imagine new worlds. I wanted to be, um, I, I grew up in Oak Park. Mm-hmm. Yep, Oak yep. Park was home of Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm-hmm. So we had several Frank Lloyd Wright, beautiful homes there that just really inspired me. So I would go there and just sort of dream about living in places like that. Mm-hmm. So I always had dreams and aspirations of sort of the, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, but only through what I could see in front of me, you know, and for me, that was these luxurious homes that were, you know, right in my neighborhood. So I always, when I was thinking about going to college and doing something beyond playing basketball, um, I only thought about being an architect because mm. I didn't think I was good enough in basketball to do to go that far. Copy. Yeah, me neither. It's one of those things where I love to front like I was a baller, but I was definitely a junior on JV on the bench. <laughs> you know what I mean? I wasn't going to make it. Right. Uh, I right. wasn't quite on the bench. Okay. I'm not going to go that oh, yeah. far. <laughs> but, fair, fair, uh, fair. but I knew I wasn't good enough to take, you know, go to Kentucky, <laughs> go to Duke, go to North Carolina. Right. So I ended up with a mid-level Division one scholarship. Copy. So then let's go there. So you want to be an architect. At this point in time, you're expressing a lot of your creativity through drawing. So you go to SMU. Right. right. Is that correct? That's right. Um, does SMU help feed this creativity and this dream of being an architect or does it play out differently? It played out a little bit differently than I expected. So what I didn't realize when I was going through the recruiting process. Opportunity is not equally distributed. To every black entrepreneur listening, I want to make sure you have the tools and resources you need to grab your next opportunity. That's why I'm telling you about the One Million Black Businesses Initiative. The One Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale One Million Black Businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field. From free business coaching to tailored training and an extended free Shopify trial. Shopify has made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. 
The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says... The one million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Chart your own path for business success with the one million black businesses initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at Shopify.com slash black print, all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash black print process is that I probably should have checked with the schools that they had my major. Okay. <laughs> right? The basics, right? The basics yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, so I'm yeah. thinking about, you know, are they paying for books? Are they paying for school? What's the team going to be like? And so I did not like the recruiting process for Division One basketball. I didn't mm. like talking to the coaches on the phone. I just really didn't love the process. So I only visited two schools. And at the time, you were allowed to visit five schools. SMU was the second school I visited, mm. and I loved it so much. They had a black coach. In high school, I had a black coach. Mm. Um, they had five new freshmen that were coming in from all over the country, Dallas, um, um, Chicago, L.A., all really, really dope brothers mm. that we were all on our visit together. So we, were, we made a pact on our visit. Yeah, we're going to come to SMU. We're going to play five. for a black coach. Right. We're going to be the five five. We're about to kill it. We're going <laughs> to take it to the top, right? So after that second visit, I was done. And I told my mom, I was like, I don't want to visit any more schools. We're going to SMU. Mm. Uh, it didn't hurt that it was a beautiful campus. You know, uh, there was no snow that I had to shovel every mm. day. And it was far away from my mom, who was hoping that I stayed close. Okay. <laughs> And so, um, so SMU is feeding you in different ways. You've got, sounds like there's a brotherhood. There's the type of coaching and mentoring that you're looking for, the type Absolutely. of environment. Talk to me about the creativity piece. Are you getting your, are you designing? Are you drawing? Are you able to do, pursue your architectural dreams at SMU? So I, I asked what would be the closest thing to architecture. I found out they did not have an architecture degree. So I said, okay, I started talking to people. What can I do that's similar, you know, sitting at a drafting table? So I started off as a mechanical engineering major. Mm. And I realized quickly in my first class that I was in a class of like 300 people. We were all in these drafting tables, probably at least five feet from one another. We had to be silent. Mm. And I'm working on airplane parts. Mm. Like okay, I'm trying to talk to somebody next to me. I'm you know I'm outgoing, gregarious. I'm like, hey, what's going on? How you doing? They're like shh. I'm like oh, okay, I'm like this is this is pretty tight. You know what I mean? And I knew right from that class, I'm like, this isn't this for isn't me. For I don't care about airplane parts. And if I can't talk to other people, we having a good time. Like this <laughs> right. is not for me. So I realized like okay, what what am I yeah. going to do what's next? What's the pivot? Yeah, yeah what's what the pivot? Do? What do you do? And luckily, I had um, signed up for this advertising class mm. in the arts program, and I had an amazing um, teacher, and she was super super creative. So that was a time where we were coming up with co- campaign ideas. Mm. I had to design my own out of home campaign. Um, we understood about insights and strategy and how you apply that to business and how you story told around that. And I was just like really inspired around being able to talk about business and creativity mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. And I thought that this is a spot where I can actually 
you know, make my mom proud where I can actually have a job mm -hmm. and, and make money, but still flex my creativity. I love that. Um, so I went with advertising as a degree. I love that. Um, I didn't know that we have that in common, but we very much do. I'm going to tell you my side, but really quickly, did you know advertising existed as a career before that class? Had no idea. Yeah. I didn't even know that all of the posters on my wall was, was advertising. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm the same way. So like, um, going through college, I never had like something that I was in love with. I was good at school. Um, but I didn't love school right. and it wasn't until second semester senior year I take a marketing and advertising course and it's like for the first time my soul is set on fire Got and I'm it. like yeah this is this is what I'm supposed to do I didn't know we had that in common but very very much the same That's amazing. the same move okay so I know that you end up making your way into the advertising world um, from my research it sounds like it started because you were while you were at SMU you were also coaching basketball is that true Exactly. So we did a ton of community service on okay. being scholarship athletes. And one of the things I wanted to do was work with kids. So I signed up to run the SMU um, summer basketball camps mm. and uh, things for young kids that come and develop on campus. And I love just working with kids. Mm. You know, it was really seeing them grow and develop with things I could give them was really uh, important to me. And so um, the story goes that you happened to run into somebody in the advertising world through that camp or through that coaching. Tell me about that. I did. So I found out my senior year that um, my coach was not going to extend my scholarship. So I oh. redshirted my freshman year because I had back surgery. I ended up herniating my disc and had surgery on my L4, L5 um, Disc. We got that in common too. No way. I have a messed up L5 S1, but yes. <laughs> now we're gonna have a we have a part two of this show. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Um, and so that surgery allowed me to have one one extra year to play. We got a new coach during that time frame. So my coach told me late in the year that I was not going to be able to play another year and that I had to just graduate with my peers. So I was stressed. I hadn't gone mm -hmm. through interviews. I hadn't thought about what I wanted to do in my life. I hadn't, I didn't have a resume. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do. So one day, literally I'm at this camp dealing just with real these quick, kids. Real, real, so what does that feel like? So you came to this school to play ball. You came in with this group of people. I didn't know that part about this. Like, so what does it feel like when it is snatched away from you all of a sudden? Like, just walk me back to that moment in time. Brother, you want me to cry on? You want me to cry on this podcast? I thought this was supposed to be uplifting. Um, I would say it was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life, mm -hmm. and it defines me today. Mm. I had finished. We had just finished. Um, um, a March Madness tournament, and we we just missed the tournament mm. by the hair of our of our teeth. You know what is it? The skin hair of our teeth. Skin of our like teeth. Yeah. One of those things. Yeah. <laughs> and. Um, we had literally, it was a buzzer beater that, that got, that ended my sports career. Get out. And when you think you have another year, right? Um, I'm like, okay, we're going to come back and get it next year. And I remember, so, so March Madness was in spring. You graduate in May. I remember the coaches called me into the office and they're all sitting me down very much like this. And they said, so Jabari, like, tell me your plans for next year. And I was like, all right, coach, you know, I'm, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to mm. try to work and try to earn a spot and start next year. And they kind of looked around. He was like, you know, we decided uh, we're not going to do that. Mm. And uh, we're only obligated to see you through graduation. You're graduating and you should just go ahead with your buddies and we're going to bring in fresh new talent. But if there's anything we can do to help you, let me know. 
and the blood started like rising in my in my in my mind and in my mind i, I wanted to just go crazy yeah, i wanted to go survival. nuts oh, that's my, my dream being taken away this is the way that i'm eating i'm feeding myself that's all of that stuff being snatched away and you had no clue it was coming and my advisor told me that um if i had played another year they were going to pay for me to get a master's in liberal liberal arts so it would have been not only got a four-year degree but i would have gotten a master's out of that next year so he just took a master's out of my hand mm. and he didn't he knew that he was going to do that and didn't tell me until March and I'm graduating in May. Mm. So I was scared. Mm -hmm. First thing I did was I call my mom, mom, tell her the whole story. I'm crying. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm confused. I start trying to now put together a resume. I start trying to call people and I had, you know, I had no head start like a lot of my other peers that were graduating. And I want to say the next week, and I, I'm, a, I'm a, a believer in God. My mom and I prayed that everything was going to be good mm -hmm. for us. Um, and that I was going to remain, you know, stay under God's umbrella yeah. protection. Yeah. And literally the next week I was working at this basketball camp and it was the last week of that camp. And a gentleman walked over to me uh, and he said, my son really loved working with you this summer. Um, he loves working with you on all these camps. What do you do? What do you what are you graduating with? I said, well, I'm going to have an advertising degree. He said, really? Pulls out his business card. He said, well, I'm, I'm the president at DDB Needham, the okay. local ad agency. Okay. <laughs> DDB is a huge, monstrous global agency. Monstrous. That's, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. And they were in a massive <laughs> building downtown yeah, yeah, Dallas. Yeah. And I was like, thank you, God. Mm. He tells me to give him a call. I literally call him the next week. He gets me in for an interview and landed my first job at the bottom, bottom, bottom of the totem pole uh, as a traffic manager at DDB Dallas. Oh, I love that. Okay, I want to jump into DDB Dallas, but last question on this one um, and this kind of like this traumatic experience. So it sounds like a lot of what gets you through is the faith walk, like just my belief that my, that my hands, my life is not guided by man, but by God and I will be okay. Is there anything else that got you through? It sounds like it was actually pretty short, like a week. Right, it was. It was <laughs> Most people's like journey is not a week, you know, right. it might be a year. But was there anything else besides that faith walk that kind of pushed you through, helped you get through? Like most of us, my mama. Mm. It started with her, you yes. know what I mean? She's the one that built the faith up in me, you know? She's the one that introduced me to the faith, and she's the one that keeps reminding me of how God plays a role in my life. So it started with her. She was my first call. Mm -hmm. and she's like, remember, remember we have faith. Mm -hmm. Remember, you've always been taken mm -hmm. care of. My mom used to tell me, she's like, Jabari, you've always had favor with God and with people. She's like, when you were in, in middle school, you'd play a basketball game, and you'd have a terrible game, mm -hmm. but you'd make one shot at the end, and then you'd be on the front page of the, of the local newspaper. Mm -hmm. She's like, I don't know how you've done it, but you have always had favor. Mm -hmm. And so nothing, that's not going to change now. And literally a week Beautiful. later that happened. So like when you have those kind of experiences over yeah. and over and over again, your faith becomes really strong. Yeah, it's the faith walk and it's also your circle, right? It's Absolutely. like as you're, as you're navigating this journey, who are the people you have around you that can speak life into us? We spend so much time talking about the haters and the people who don't want to see us succeed, yes. right? This is a whole story about the people I have in my corner who are pushing me to succeed absolutely which is dope and then i love how you get the job it reminds me of this when something happens to your kitchen you might say this is ludicrous but that won't fix your home that will only get you the rapper ludicrous having trouble don't panic don't be alarmed you need to file a claim holla at state farm like a good neighbor state farm is there that's right you can file a claim on the app or call us Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Um, 
There's this quote from Aristotle that says, um, we are what we repeatedly do. Mm. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. And so here you are being excellent as a basketball coach, and it leads you to your first job in the ad industry, Absolutely. which sounds like a beautiful place to start. Yeah. Okay. And I would say that it's not even being excellent as a coach. It was being a good person. Mm. The coaching job allowed me to create a relationship with this young man, you know, and the relationship I had with him, not just how, what I taught him, but, you know, I was talking to him about school and about, you know, his books, you know, yeah. and I realized that it's all about people mm -hmm. and your relationship with people that is going to open up or close mm -hmm. everything in your life. Mm -hmm. And that blessings can come from anywhere, right? It's like you weren't expecting that and they're not always a linear path. That was a very exactly. lateral move, but blessings can happen. Yeah, you would think, situation. oh, I'm going to treat this person well because they could do something exactly. for me not this little kid exactly right? exactly exactly okay so dope so you so now you're at the agency um you're an account person correct i am a traffic manager okay, which is traffic, below an account person okay real quick what is what do traffic people so do? a traffic manager back in the day there was no uh remember it was very little internet yep. uh email communication yep. so in advertising each project had a job jacket which is basically a big folder yep. that would have all the materials at that project. And so I would then, you know, take the brief in that folder and I'd take it over to the copywriter. Then the copywriter would write it and then I'd take the copy and take it over to the art director and just made sure everything, everybody had what they needed right. and on time and, and so that we could launch our programs. Traffic people are like the best pusher papers in the world. They basically oh. make sure everybody sees everything, everybody signs off on it so you can't say that you didn't see it, right? And then that's how you make exactly. sure before very operational, goes out the door. Very detail-oriented and I'm might have been the worst traffic manager <laughs> in the history <laughs> of account management. You were too busy chopping it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to have a good time. I'm trying to hang out with the creatives. You know what I mean? I'm, try, I'm trying to give ideas. They're like, that's not your job. So. <laughs> and so that's what I was going to say, because then you go from traffic to account. Neither one of those jobs are known for being creative. Exactly. And the creative departments inside of an agency can be very territorial. Yes. And so how are you feeling being an account person who feels like they are very creative by nature, but you're arm's length away from like this world that probably seems very exciting. Like, are you happy with that job? Are you thrilled with that job? So luckily I was working in the sports category. So at DDB, I was working on foot action. Okay. So I would be a part of, you know, I'd be around athletes. And so what was amazing is that in the ad agency world, there weren't any many that looked like me. Mm -hmm. There weren't many that knew culture and mm -hmm. hip hop, and there weren't many that played sport. Mm -hmm. So while I was doing my job, I also moonlighted as the consumer insights person because the creators would come to me and say, what's, what's the music we should put in this? Mm. Like, who, who are the dope athletes again? Like, what, you know what I mean? Like, what should they be wearing? And, you know, like, I'd be on set and, you know, they'd be shooting baskets. And you, I know you've seen, like, a, you know, a Hollywood film where the basketball doesn't look authentic and it looks kind of <laughs> weird. And I was the one teaching them how you, like, make a swish sound. You know what I mean? Like, and so I became a little bit more than the account person. I was kind of like the cultural insight person mm. that gave me a little bit more proximity to the creative team. And I realized like that was going to be my angle. Mm. Your arm's length away doing a very different job, but using 
knowledge that differentiates you within the building to kind of find your way over. And then finding your way over there, you're like, this is exciting for me. Exactly. Okay, so now exactly. what happens after? So what's next? DDB account person, then you go where? So I went, so started DDB, and because I had done a couple of these shoots, we would partner, uh, I was working on foot action, so we would partner with um, some of the sport OEMs like Adidas and Nike. And one of the shoots I had was with uh, Michael Johnson mm. and the Nike Track team. Star. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that process, I had done some other insight work and, and talked to them about the culture. And right after that, I got a call from Wyden and Kennedy. Mm. And they called the me in biggest. Dallas. The <laughs> biggest. And I, I had never heard of Wyden and Kennedy at okay. this time. I didn't know much about advertising agencies. And I got a call from a man. He said, look, we have the Nike account. The brand Jordan account. As soon as I said that, like, yeah, I'm locked in. I'm, yeah, 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 you know, I'm going crazy, right? And we're looking for uh, an assistant account executive that knows basketball, mm. that knows culture, and knows advertising. Mm. I like. I'll take that job, yeah. right? Um, so they flew me out to Portland, Oregon, which I had never heard of again, mm -hmm. and couldn't put on a map before I got there. And uh, within like 24 hours, I had gotten the job, Beautiful. you know, sold the team over and won the team over and was working for a woman named Rebecca Van Dyke, who gave me my first shot at one of the biggest ad agencies working on one of the biggest brands ever. Mm. Any projects from that point in time that you're super proud of or super excited oh, about man. or you feel like it was a first? Absolutely. Um, they wouldn't let me too close to the creative at Widener Kennedy. Okay. If you know anything about Widener <laughs> right, Kennedy, right, 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 right. they, uh, the creative directors are yeah, at the God. top of the totem, yeah. top, the totem pole. They're gods. Yeah. And everybody else is crap. Yeah. So if I didn't have the connection into sport, I was a basketball player. If I wasn't into hip hop, like I wouldn't be in a lot of conversations, but it took um, a creative, a black creative. He was the only black creative at mm. Widen and Kennedy. And I was the only black and first black account person at Widen and Kennedy. You were the first black account person the at Widen and black, Kennedy? The first black, a white, wow. had an all white agency. Yeah, that's crazy. When I got there, we had a black woman, trans woman at mm. the front desk. Mm. We had two black people in the mail room. And we had Jimmy Smith, who was hey, a creative of course, director. Of course. And then in come 6'5", yeah. ball head, Jabari, gotcha. you know, Gregarious coming in. Gotcha. So and Jimmy's the one that saw you? Jimmy's the one who I worked with on Nike. Oh. He wasn't the one who saw me. It was another creative director that okay. saw me. But um, I immediately got put on Nike, which Jimmy was leading. And we are, are friends to this day. Beautiful, beautiful. A lot of times, like, um, especially in this moment, you see black people getting positions. Um, and sometimes there's a belief that they're getting the role because they're black. And I think we sometimes want to reject that notion. Yeah. Um, I think that white people get jobs all the time based on being white and knowing people. So it really shouldn't matter. Yeah. But what's in your story that's also true is that because of who you are, you had a very unique lens. I'm the one that gets the culture. I'm the one that sees how uh, what's happening in these kind of urban cities. I'm the one that knows how sports works. And so leveraging that time and time again to kind of separate yourself from the past. Exactly. Yeah. And Jimmy was the one who gave me the insight. He said, look, everybody here has great ideas. You are not going to get in the room with your ideas. Mm. You're going to get in the room with your insights. Mm. He's like, so understand what's going on with the culture, with the consumers, with hip hop, with, with technology, with everything. And then bring that to the room because that is not going to be your idea. Yeah. Right. That is like, it's like ingredients for creatives to play a role in. Yeah. And so once he told me that, like I'm, I'm reading everything, I'm, I'm reading every source magazine, right? <laughs> I'm literally like every album that drops, I'm like listening to every word so I can understand where 
where the culture was going. And then I would bring people into that world. Yeah. Right. So we, we would travel to L.A. I would take them to hip hop shows. I would mm. take them to clubs. You know, I would introduce them to people. And that became my claim to fame. Super dope. Super dope. OK, so. After Wyden Kennedy, I believe I see a gap on your resume. Is that true? Not uh, many people talk about the gap. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, when you look at it, you look at the math, there's a gap. So, you know, my big question is, why did you leave Wyden Kennedy and what happened in the gap? Two reasons why I left Wyden Kennedy. Um, I was there as an assistant account executive there for about two years. And I remember, I haven't actually told this story before. Hmm. I'm ready. Should I, should yeah, I let it totally. Out? Come with it. So I'm at Widening and uh, working on basketball, and there was an opening for the account lead mm. on basketball. So I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be my shot. Should I'm about to be get promoted. One person. Exactly. Yeah. I'm the only brother in here. I've been doing all this stuff. And they bring in a white guy oh, from outside and make him the head of the account, mm. and I have to work for him. Mm. Say less. That was the first time something like that had ever happened to me. Mm. I wasn't as mature about handling it. <laughs> um, what does that mean? Like, were you ripping posters off the wall, screaming, or like? No, I'm from, you know I grew up in the suburbs. Okay. So I wasn't acting up. Like, <laughs> but I, but I made it known. Like, are yeah. you kidding me? Like, I'm here doing this and that. And they gave me some story about how he has more experience, so on and so forth. And it's, I have this thing in me that when I'm done with you, done. I'm done. It's just a wrap. Yeah. So we argued a little bit. And they're like, no, he has the job. Okay. Done. Smile. Yeah. Keep doing my job. And I started looking. Done. And a woman who was at Wyden had just gone to Shia Day, um, L.A. Mm. TBWA Shia mm. L.A., which is a big agency. Of course. And so I called her. I was like, Let me, I need to, you know, I know I can do more. I know I'm more than this assistant. And so she got me to a job there working at houseofblues.com mm. as a senior account executive. Okay, so, you got so I had jumped two from yeah, an assistant levels. account where they said me, I'm not ready. Yeah. And I go to another big agency and I get to skip that level and yeah. they say I'm ready for that. So that was another lesson in listening to people who say you're not ready for something. Amen. You and I have so much, like so much of our stories are similar. I met Johnson and Johnson in 2007. At the time when I came in, they paid you based on how many years you had been out of school. I went to business. What's good, y'all? It's Aaliyah from the Young and Dumb Show. I have something for you. If you're young and interested in learning more about different careers, becoming an entrepreneur, and really get into the bag, then be sure to check out and subscribe to the Young and Dumb Show. On this show, we sit down with the biggest, and I'm talking the biggest, career professionals, entrepreneurs, influencers, and entertainers to break down how to be successful in different industries. It's brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip-hop, powered by creators. Let's get it, y'all. School young, like two years out. Okay. So I was making the bottom of what you could make. Right. The next year, they changed it that all MBAs make the same amount of money no matter how many years you've been out. And um, so now I am training all white boys who make more money than me after I had proven myself for a year. When I asked for the promotion, when I asked for them to bump my salary, it's like, nah, we can't do it. And my boss was really amazing at the time. He believed that I deserved it. And um, when I asked him why, he, why they would not give me the role and why they would not give me the promotion, he was like, I can't even tell you. Because if I tell you, it's gonna break what makes you special. And like in that note was, 
me realizing that I had a really great leader who A, was protecting my gifts, mm -hmm. B, if what makes me special is something that I need to fix in this company, then it's not a company that I need to be in, right? And I never worked for corporate America again another day in my life, wow. right? That was my last time. I wish I was that brave. <laughs> really. I was like, I'm out. I've been working for black people <laughs> since 2007. I love it. <laughs> okay, so you make your way to TBWA. Yeah, which was based in LA. Yep, yep. So I had been doing a bunch of um, productions in LA, being in Portland, going down there. And I knew, I'm like, man, I love this the weather, mm -hmm. water, mm. women. The everything at that time. I'm 21 yeah, years old, yeah, yeah. you know, traveling on a on a on a on a company budget to Los Angeles. I was just in love, so I'm like, I'm moving to LA because I'm gonna meet Halle Berry and I'm gonna like change my life and it'll you know, be good. She's right? gonna change my life, yes. exactly. And um, I knew that was gonna be my destiny. But as I was making that transition, uh, Jimmy, who was the creative director, was like, Yo, if you move into LA. I see you as like the next black action superhero. Okay. <laughs> Pumping me up, right? He's like, you should be an actor, man. Because I was, you know, I was a young kid, I'm wild and gregarious, having a good time. When uh, you know, we'd have parties, I would DJ, I would act and sing, you know, being silly. And so um, he's like, you need to be an entertainer. Mm. So they had a program at Wyden called Wyden and Kennedy Entertainment, and they would try to take the IP from our commercials mm -hmm. and develop them into other things, books, shows. And so Jimmy was like, yo, I'm working on a play that we're going to pitch to Broadway. I want you to audition for it. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know kind of what he was talking about. I was moving to L.A. I was like, yeah, just hit me. I'll, I'll, I'll work on it. So I had gotten to L.A. When I got to work on at Tashiat to work on HouseOfBlues.com, this was right during the dot-com bust. Mm. So I'm thinking I'm going to work on music and culture again, really transitioning House of Blues to a digital proposition. And they decided not to launch HouseOfBlues.com. Mm. And they said, Jabari, I know you came here to work on House of Blues, but we need you to work on something else called Salon Paws. Like the medical. That's what I am. I'm like okay. salon pods. Can you can you explain what that is? You want me to work on some salons? Like you know hair. They're like no, it's a it's a Asian Ben Gay product. Exactly, icy hot. Sold at like Asian grocers. And I'm coming from working on Nike and Brand Jordan. Yeah. You know, I like. Okay, sure. <laughs> so I quickly quit there and I went to like work for another dot com, knowing that, that mm -hmm. not knowing that this was going to be like a big dot com sort of bust and. In between, when I was about to go to this job, I decided to audition for this play. Yeah, with Jimmy. And it was in New York City. And he's like, come on out. I'll, I can get you a place to stay, but just come and I'll tell you everything. So with this company, I told him, I said, hey, I need to go get some new business in New York. Let me go to New York for a couple of weeks and mm -hmm. I'll meet with all my agency contacts. Damn, I never told anybody this either. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That means we're in the right place. We're in the right place. Yeah. I did not go meet any of my other agency <laughs> right, contacts. Sure. And I literally stayed up and auditioned for this play called, it was called Ball. Mm. It was a hip hopera where um, LL Cool J was the lead. Savion Glover was the choreographer, and it was a bunch of us basketball players um, and actors that would take the basketball and use the dribbling sounds of that. like a beat. Right? I remember that. It was that. part of a, one of my last campaigns at Wide. Okay, that's probably right. So um, it was an amazing experience. I got to meet LL's um, acting coach. I got the acting bug. We were rapping with LL Cool J, and I was like, yo, this is what I want to do. 
this is what I want to do. Um, so as the dot com thing continued to happen, so we didn't sell the show. Okay. We did it for like three weeks. I went back to L.A. Um, I got laid off at the next dot com job because the whole bust happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went to my dad and said, I want to take some time off. I had heard of white people, you know, taking gap years and stuff like that. <laughs> I never I thought that was those? something right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I asked my, beg my dad. I said, dad, I know I can make something work for $5,000. Mm. I just give me a little head start. I was on unemployment. And so I, I got a headshot. Um, I signed up for an acting class, which was LL Cool J's acting class, okay. which funny story is happened to be Will Smith's acting coach okay. as well. Um, and I started off on my, on my path for acting to pay for my rent and stuff. I was also a bouncer at night on some in, two okay. different clubs, one in West Hollywood, one down in Venice had to wear, you know, them tight t-shirts and stuff, stand in the back, you know, chest out. Exactly. Yeah. And luckily off that loan from my dad, I was able to get, um, headshots as well as I wanted to try, um, producing music. Mm, they come from let Chicago. Me find out. Okay. Right? We had some house Inspired music. Inspired by Kanye. Right? Some gospel. We had uh, um, R. Kelly, you know, uh, but I had all kinds of music inspirations as well. So I was like, I also want to try music. I just want to like express as much creativity as I can in this period. So uh, with that loan, I bought a, a, a Triton, a Korg Triton workstation keyboard that would allow me to program and sequence beats uh, when, because, you know, during the day I wasn't really working, you know, mm. if I wasn't going to audition. So um, I started off hot, bro. Okay. <laughs> I'm telling you, like, uh, got my head like, shot. How many of you was producing heat? On acting, I started off oh, okay, high. Okay, okay. So I, I got on my first auditions. One of the first uh, auditions was for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm. And I ended up getting the role. Okay. And what that did was enable me to get my SAG card because yep. um, they hired me when I wasn't SAG. I, have, I was a guest star. I had four lines. Um, I went on set and I had my own little trailer. I'm thinking. Oh, you had your own trailer? Bro, oh, no, you went in if you got your own trailer. I had my own trailer. It was, you know, masking tape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over yeah, my yeah, name yeah, on it, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. But, but, you know, but I have my own little TV in there. Oh, man, I called my mom. I'm like, yeah, Halle Berry is about to be right around the corner. Like, I'm on my way. Quickly after that, I got on a roll of uh, Spin City. Okay. With okay. Charlie Sheen. Charlie I'm Sheen, literally yep. in a scene with pushing Charlie Sheen through a hospital. Had four lines there. Was a guest star. Mm. I'm thinking I'm on top of the world, man. I, telling you, I have a big head, but my head was too big for my shoulders at this point, right? And I'm for sure thinking I'm going to be a Hollywood star. Mm. And after that role, I think it was a year before... I never got another role, but there was a year before I realized, okay, maybe I should start thinking about something different. Mm. And I would go on auditions. I remember going on an audition for ER. And what was weird about me is that um, I couldn't play the traditional black roles that were being offered to me. A pimp, drug dealer, mm. you know, this kid from the street. Cause I'm, I grew up in the suburbs, the I went to SMU, right? Mm. So I'm, I'm talking more proper stuff. <laughs> so like, I can't pass as a blue collar black kid the way that they wanted me to in the film Got right it. i'm going I, I literally was auditioning for the same role as cat williams yeah so right. you're not gonna be cat at the same time <laughs> i'm not gonna be cat for a pimp role right exactly. you know what can't, I'm can't, can't live that life at the same time i was getting auditions for like leading man roles right so you look at my headshot i kind of look like a, you know most leading men have big heads so i had like leading <laughs> leading man auditions but i was a terrible actor okay i was a new actor so i would go into these big, big auditions without the audit without the acting chops to match i looked the part right, right? right but right. i had didn't have enough experience so i would go into these big auditions with long you know scripts and i had also had a terrible memory 
memory. <laughs> so I could not remember my lines. And plus, I wasn't that great of an actor. So I remember going in an audition for ER and being one of the patients that they focus on each of the episodes. And I remember walking to the audition and there were the you know producers were sitting there on the couch mm-hmm. and I start my audition and they just start snickering. <laughs> like, and so I'd like finish it and stop and they're like, oh, excuse me, you're supposed to have a broken leg. <laughs> and I'm sitting there standing, right, you you know, doing my audition and stuff and I'm like, oh. Oh, I didn't know that I was, and you know, they don't tell you how to audition. There's no class to tell you, you know, how you're supposed to behave. And I was so embarrassed by that. And I was so angry. I was like, I'm never watching ER again, man. Get this stuff, man. I walked out and that was the last of my acting career. Wow. Okay. So then what does the pivot look like? Um, So you convince your dad, give me 5,000. I'm going to make this work. You pop off, you booking big shows in the beginning, and then you go a year without booking again, yes. right? What's the pivot look like? So uh, the pivot, my unemployment was running out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and I had just met a woman who I thought I needed to do better for. She's my wife now, so this mm-hmm. is a good story. Okay. <laughs> and um, I realized that I didn't want to be that guy, the starving actor, the, you know, the traditional stereotype in mm-hmm. L.A., a bouncer trying to be an actor when I had all this work experience. So I knew I had to transition out of acting. It was never my dream. Halle Berry hadn't called me yet. So I was like, let's just go ahead and get back into business. So mm-hmm. I ended up taking another advertising job um, down in Orange County on Land Rover. But I was not happy. Mm-hmm. I was like, I thought I had another life. Now I'm going backwards. I was sort of lost. I'm like, what am I going to do? I guess I can do this advertising thing again where I'm not as a creative um, and I have to deal with all these people I have to deal with, yeah. mostly white environments. It wasn't a good period. For me. Mm. The, the, the one gem you dropped that I want to make sure people don't catch is that you found a woman that made you want to be a better man, right? Find the woman who makes you want to be the man you aspire to be. Like, I Absolutely. think that's dope, right? Absolutely. And so that causes you to start looking in different places. Okay, so we're on Land, Lo- Land Rover. Is that what it was? Land Rover. Okay, and we're unhappy. What's next? Where do you move to? So now I'm thinking, so I was an account executive then. And so now I'm thinking, okay, how can I get closer to creative? Mm-hmm. So I started looking to get into strategy. So that was when and account planning became a bigger thing. It came over from, from the UK. Wyden and Kennedy started to get planners. And so I was like, I want to now switch my career and be an account planner. Of course, nobody would hire me. Mm. I had no experience being a planner. It was kind of a highbrow kind of role in advertising at that time. If you didn't have an English accent, you probably weren't going to get hired. Yeah. Um, so I actually went to a multicultural agency called Muse Cordero oh, Chin and Partners. Well. Yeah, of course. And they focused on Black, Hispanic, and Asian yeah. uh, marketing in partnership with general market agencies. So uh, Shelly Yamani, I'll never forget it, mm. uh, gave me my first shot as a strategic planner and I owe her everything mm. because that changed the trajectory of me being just from like a pushing paper to really being closer to creative. Yeah, I'm jealous. When I saw that you made the move to strategy, I was jealous because I tried to make the same move. I was literally at Global Hue, the president of the company saying, I want to switch into to planning and they were going to let me switch the head of strategy at the time, but it was literally going to cut my salary by like it was going to be one-tenth of what I was making. Wow. And I was like, but I run this company. She was like, nope. If you come over here, you got to start from scratch. So whenever I see people who made that transition from account to account planning or strategy, it's like super impressive. It was huge. So what did it mean for you? So you say this thing was game-changing. What did it do for you? 
it it allowed me, it gave me the foundation of consumer insights. So I knew that was what made me successful, just inherently being the kid who knew culture, but I didn't actually know how to operationalize sure. that, right? And really turn insights and do research and really deeply understand consumers, everything that they do, how they think, what they eat, mm-hmm. what they watch, what they consume, you know, literally get into every aspect of their life. And she taught me all of that, Shelly, mm-hmm. um, and how to dig into it. And because we we're on a multicultural stage, I was still talking about black folks, yeah, right? So a people. lot of it was me and my people and yeah. some of it was research and understanding. So I was able to sort of bring both of those sides back to the job. And I I was working on the army and Honda um, at that time. Mm. And I did that for about two years, which then enabled me to get my next big planning job at one of these big agencies, which was Chiat San Francisco, mm-hmm. uh, working on Adidas. Mm-hmm. And so I think you do Chiat. Do you go back to Wyden and Kennedy? So I got to um, I got to Chiat. I didn't go back to Wyden, okay. but that Chiat job, working on Adidas, Let's enabled to me Nike to get to my job. job. Got it. Okay, so real quick, as a planner, is there a creative brief that you wrote that gave birth to some campaign that you're proud of? If not, we're going to move to the Nike piece. No, the the planner, um, the thing that I did that I'm really, really proud of is I wrote um, basically a white paper and a video on this is urban. Mm. Back then, people were like, urban means black. Yeah. And this was right when actually black culture was transitioning into popular culture. Right. So I was explaining to them, no, no, no. When you're talking about hip hop, you are talking about youth culture. That's right. And I went out and and hired a really young agency that was like a culture agency um, with some guys I just caught up with in Cannes, as a matter of fact, and reminded them that this was their first project and my biggest project at the time. And we went to L.A., New York, Chicago and Miami and talked with influencers. This is the first I ever heard of influencers. Mm. Right. Um, And what year is this? Just this would have been like 2004. Exactly. Right around that time frame. So people who are rock stars right now. I met early on in their life and career mm-hmm. and and they told us about what it was like, what is culture, what is that? And we videoed the whole thing and I put together this amazing video and presentation that I would present to all of our clients as well as our agency to say this is the new face of youth culture. Mm. Was was planning feeding your your need to be creative? Was Absolutely. it feeding your creative energy? Yeah, because How what, so? I would, yeah. what I would do is um, I would turn, put all my creativity into the insight videos, mm-hmm. right? So all the recaps, I would be like, okay, what music are we going to put on this? Okay, I'm going to put that that Nas track on this mm-hmm. part, you know what I mean? And I was in the editing room. I'm editing videos. I'm making sure we get the right shot, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm, I'm literally working on video yeah. content, yeah. you know what I mean? And working with editors all the time and, and production teams. So that was my creative outlet at the mm-hmm. time. And so then you leverage that to move into Nike, which is a job that so many people probably have wanted. Let's talk a little bit about Absolutely. what you did during your time at Nike. What campaigns did you I was a little depressed at first because I thought okay. <laughs> that advertising was going to be my life. Okay. Right? I was like, all right, I have a degree. I guess I'm just going to be in advertising for life. And, you know, was when you're, um, I was having a good time, but I was also one of the few black people in the company. Mm-hmm. Right. So that starts to get wearing after a while, wears on you. So I was like, this is going to be my life. And um, I was thinking about going to another ad agency called Crispin Porter. Oh, yeah. They were balling at the they time. They were balling at the time. <laughs> they were crushing. So I interviewed there, got a job. They offered me the job. You were going to move later, to Colorado? I was going to move to Colorado. Yeah, yeah. Um, a day later, I got a call from Nike. Mm. Say, hey, will you come interview for this uh, Consumer Insights job today? Because I got to make a decision. Man, I got on a plane so fast, yeah, flew easy. out there, interviewed. 
got the job the next day and I had to call Crispin and say, I'm sorry, I can't can't take this role. I'm going to my dream job. Yeah. And so what is so um, what type of work did you do at Nike? So I got hired by a man named Jeff Cha, who ran a new department called Consumer Cultures. Okay. And I was at Nike at the time where it was a it was a horizontally based company, footwear, apparel, equipment. And my department was to inspire them to switch to a, a category based offense. So basketball, football, baseball, mm. soccer. And what my team would do was develop the consumer the mission, vision, positioning that would be the foundation for each of those categories. So I was hired to work on both men's training and basketball, helping them understand who their consumer was, define that landscape, and then set the foundation for the global category. All right. So I know you did a lot of insanely crazy dope stuff at Nike. Nike is um, always on the list of like top five, top 10 marketers, advertisers. Um, So if you could pick one campaign that you got to touch, that you felt like was exciting, that it was the type of work that you were excited about doing what was it man if you I mean, we did so one. many dope things yeah, like launching the nfl launching you know Kyrie's first shoe oh, you, KD, Kyrie. you know these types of things um but i would say the most iconic thing i worked on the thing i'm most proud of is the last campaign i did there mm-hmm. after 10 years of being there working on dope things i was able to work on basketball mm-hmm. leading basketball for north america um, and the project that I was going to lead in my, when I first got there was All-Star New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was there. Yeah, huge <laughs> opportunity, great market. And uh, when I got on basketball, the product was already going. We kind of had a plan already for All-Star. But earlier that year, I want to say it was... Trayvon Martin mm. got killed. I can't remember, which is ridiculous. I can't remember which person, which black right, person which got killed around it? this time frame. But um, some of our athletes spoke up on it during the ESPYs. Mm. So it was like LeBron. You, know, you remember that? Uh, Chris Paul, um, D Wade yeah. basically said, "Look." It was during the MTV. No, it was during the ESPYs. ESPYs yeah. They came up and said, look, we got we to gotta do something about what's going on. And we got to use our platform. We got to use our voice. And we got to stand up. And we got to make a difference. And so I use that as inspiration to take to Nike's leadership and say, look, Nike's always been this brand about standing up for our athletes, elevating our athletes' voice, and standing up for what's going on in culture. We need to say something during All-Star. And we pitched a bunch of ideas and we ended up on this concept called equality. Mm. And it was really about how, why can't the world behave a little bit more like we treat people within the confines and the lines of sport, mm. right? I remember when you that. see LeBron on the court, you love him, right? You, you, you love his physicality. You love him jumping over and dunking on people. You see that same LeBron person in the alley by your house at night, you are deathly afraid, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we had this campaign that brought in LeBron and KD and Serena and Alicia Keys and Michael B. Jordan. And we brought it out there to say our, our brand believes in equality and mm-hmm. that's what we want mm-hmm. the world to continue to value. And we brought local artists from New Orleans to design our campaign. We're mm. like, let's not just come and bring the circus in. Let's bring it from community up. Love that. And we hired B Mike, who, which Ooh. is crazy. Oh, there's is all these connections back to what I'm doing at Westbrook now, because B Mike actually did the cover of Will's book. Okay. Uh, and did one of the most, you know, iconic campaigns I did as well. Um, instead of doing, you know, pushing our shoes and our programs, we did yoga for the kids. We taught them about um, the business and the industry and how they can get internships. Um, It was just 
super, super compelling. And of course, we still showed out all our shoes. Yeah. We did a, a collab with Virgil and an equality tee. And I think what I'm most proud about is um, we created a t-shirt called the Equality Tea that was sold in our factory stores where 100% of the proceeds went back to fighting against um, injustice in our community. Mm. And that t-shirt is still being sold today. That's dope. Did you guys, this I'm guessing, again, to your point, like you lose track of years, I'm guessing we're probably in like 2016-ish. Were there any other brands besides Nike that stepped out in the way that you guys stepped out? None. You know, yeah. Ben and Jerry's, they do what they yeah, do yeah, um, consistently. But there were no other brands. This was the beginning before Nike got into the Colin Kaepernick stuff, yeah. right, that they're so applauded for today. I think this really set the foundation for them to get out. Because um, at this time, they still wouldn't say Black Lives Matter. Mm. This is the best they could do was equality. Equality. Um, so I think that that really opened the door and it, it allowed them to see, okay, we can still make money and still have values. Um, and now look at them. Yeah, yeah. I think they're... I'm they're, not going to take a credit for everything they do now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but now look at them. Yeah, they're leading the pack. <laughs> What's interesting about your story is that you have leveraged the culture. You have taken the culture. You have connected millions of brand dollars to it to amplify it, celebrate it in different ways. And this one, you're doing it in a very specific social justice issue. Was this your first time feeling that type of responsibility? Like, I'm in power. I am a leader. Something crazy is happening in my community. I need to do something not just to drive the business, but to help my community be better tomorrow. Absolutely. And not just that, I was really involved in the Black Employee Network at Nike. So I'm a leader within the organization. I'm like a senior director now, right? On my way to VP, leading one of the biggest categories in North America with our biggest athletes and biggest voices in North America. Also head of, not head of, but a leading the Black Employee Network. So they're looking at me like, what are you going to do, sir? Yeah, yeah. What are you going to yeah. do? And we can't do anything down here, so I need you. DEI. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Automatically exactly. head of DEI. And so I'm like, you're right. I felt like the, the, the responsibility of my yep. community, like we're going to do something. And if I don't get it done within this organization, then I'm failing millions. Yeah, good for you. It's, um, you know, I always talk like we talk a lot about um, working for black owned companies, black owned businesses. We very much believe in that. Um, but I always look at it in like the way I look at college, like there's PWIs and HBCUs and you need people at both. Absolutely. Right? You need people at black media companies doing the work for our community. But you also need the Jabari's who are at a Nike, the Jabari's who are at whatever company who are also to help help um, working to drive the agenda and champion our needs internally. So super dope on that. One thousand percent. You go from there to the tech side. What makes you leave Nike? Here you are. You're you're, you're doing equality work, social justice work, working yep. with some of the biggest names, Kyrie. Why the, why, why the move into the tech side? So I've been at Nike now a decade, yeah. right? And people are like, man, that's your dream job. Why'd you leave? And I was like, man, I, I enjoy college too, but I ain't going to be there 10 years. Right, you know what right, I'm saying? Right. So I'd done every job within Nike. I'd done a, a function. I'd done a global category. Mm -hmm. Then I went to North America down to being the West Coast uh, marketing director for LA. Mm -hmm. So I'd seen the company from all its angles. And when you see me, you know, I'm 6'5", bald head, black dude. People see me and they think I'm an athlete. I'm like, I don't want to be pigeonholed as that. Mm. I don't want people to see me and just pretend like they know me. Mm. Um, so I was like, how can I diversify? And at that time, we had a, a love affair with Apple. So I was like, okay. I'm going to get into tech. I think that's where my my um, experience can really translate. Um, so I started interviewing at Google and Apple at the same time. Mm. And I quickly realized how much culture mattered to me. You know, I went to Apple and you walk in there and I have everything Apple. I love Apple as a brand. But walking in there, I felt like I should be, 
you know, I should pay them to breathe their air. Mm. You know, it felt really pretentious. And like, you know, I just didn't feel like I belonged. And because I was interviewing at Google at the same time, you go there and people are being silly with propeller hats and riding bikes all around. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was like, wait, hold on. Like, I, I need this culture, you know, which is just down to earth and diverse more than I need this culture. So mm. that landed me at Google working on uh, Google hardware. Mm. So you make the pivot because you feel like there's a need to diversify. Absolutely. You're ready for something different. Okay, so you do Google and you do Lyft. Yep. Are you still doing running the same place? So you've been running a play, which was let me educate these people on the culture. Let me bring the culture in and show them how the culture can move their business while we are also making sure that people in the culture are eating. Do you do you run that exact same play once you get into the tech world? Do you do similar things at Google and similar things at Lyft? Absolutely. I try to. Okay. You know, I really thought I could come in there and just sort of run the same playbooks. But what I really learned is tech, you have to teach people more than you're able to just do marketing, mm. right? So when you're in CPG, you can go out and do great marketing. Marketing has a seat at the table. But when you move into tech, you have to shift your mindset into teaching what great marketing is and how to do it. And I didn't understand that early mm. on. So I had a lot of frustration moving into tech because I felt like they didn't understand the culture. Um, they didn't understand, you know, the core consumer, because when you get into Google, I asked them who their consumer was. They say everybody, mm -hmm. you know, when you take over the world, everybody yeah. is your consumer, yeah, right? Yeah. Which is a lot harder to create. You know, if, you, if you're trying to throw a birthday party and you don't know who you're throwing it for, Absolutely. it's kind of hard to do that kind of marketing. Right. So um, I found it a little bit harder than what I was doing at Nike mm -hmm. to just go out and do dope work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It also sounds like that would be difficult for you because it doesn't sound like um, that kind of creative bug that you had been trying to feed was there. Is that true? Exactly. OK, because I had to learn the tech side of the business there. So Nike, I would say, I believe, you know, marketing is an art and a science, yeah. right? You got to have both to work. You got to have a brain and you got to have a heart. And at Nike, we were about 80% art and about 20% science. Mm -hmm. And they kept the science in the basement, yeah, hey, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was just working for That's us. That's about how I like it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You get into tech, it flips. Yeah. It's about 80% science and 20. maybe some art, right? right, right if right. there's room. <laughs> so I, and I didn't know a lot of the science, right? So I'm learning. Um, I'm trying to pretend like I know what's going on, mm -hmm. right? But that wasn't, was, creativity wasn't the stuff that was valued there. Mm -hmm. It was results, right? It was a efficiency. Um, and a lot of times that was done with really bad creative. Yeah. So I wasn't that excited about building stuff to be efficient when it wasn't quality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Impacting the culture. Exactly. Okay. So you end up going from there to where you are now, which is Westbrook. And I'm super interested in why you make the move to Westbrook. So um, when I think about it from my own lens, um, probably 2018, I did an interview and the headline they pulled out of it says, Detavio Samuel says, the future of media is influencer. And at the time, I was really just looking. I was at TV One, Urban One, and I would wake up every day and look at um, the Nielsen rating reports, right? And Nielsen would say that BET did 150,000 people, and WeTV did 250, and Bravo did 300. And then I'd open up Instagram, and Will Smith would be like, two million views on Will jumping out of a hill. And it was like he had come from almost nowhere. Like, Will had a period of time where, at least for me, he wasn't really on the radar. And so to see 
him come back onto the scene, leverage social media in the way that he did, build an audience that was larger than ABC, NBC, CBS, build an audience that was more engaged than ABC, CBS, like all of those things told me that influencers, specifically creative influencers, were the future. And that's one of the biggest reasons why I come work here under Sean Combs, right? Exactly. At the time, I'm thinking there's no way black media can make it. We're operating in a cycle of scarcity. The only place that has a chance is the one with the global icon on top, right? Mm. That's why I get here. Why do you make the move to Westbrook? You could have gone back to a Nike or back to the agency right. world, but you didn't. You went to a very specific place. Absolutely. What drove you to take that job? At that time, there was a major debate in the CMO seat about do you think about growth marketing? Are you a growth marketer yeah. or are you a brand marketer? Yeah. And it was really one or the other. And I felt like I was more in the middle and I rejected that notion, mm. you know, and I was looking for CMO roles. Nobody would hire me because they only wanted performance marketing sort of experts. Interesting. And when I was at Lyft, we had this campaign called Undercover Lyft mm -hmm. and where we would take A-list celebrities, we'd dress them up and pick up, you know, um, Lyft riders. And it was one of the most engaged, compelling series that we would have. It would also drive business. Mm. We saw major brand um, affinity sort of metrics rise. And when I, um, let me back up a little bit. Yeah. When I was at Google, working on Google Pixel, mm. I had saw what Will Smith was doing. And he had just done the jump with YouTube mm -hmm. where he jumped up for his birthday. And so I signed him to be an ambassador for the Google Pixel. Mm. And a lot of people were asking me, they're like, Will Smith, isn't he washed up? Are you kidding me? Should he be dealing with the Pixel if we're going after Apple? And I said, no, what, are you watching what's going on right now? Are you online? Are you on Instagram? Are you on YouTube? Are you seeing the engagement he's getting? Exactly. And so we ended up signing him. And that's when his you know social was starting to go crazy. Mm -hmm. His team was doing some really compelling breakthrough work. And so we hired them to do another version of Undercover Lyft when I got to Lyft mm. after leaving Google. And the proposition was Will was doing Bad Boys for Life. Okay. <laughs> and so they came to us, Westbrook came to us at the time, which was still really small, and said, yo, let's do a version of your campaign, but call it Bad Boys for Lyft. Mm. And we'll get we'll get the Porsche from the show. We'll get Will to drive around and pick up sidekicks and, you know, act like they're Martin. I was like, done, let's do it. <laughs> and so it was one of the most engaging, you know, branded content series we had done. Uh, total views. We connected it to our growth engine because mm. um, we were launching a membership product at that time. So it was a full funnel campaign and one of the most sort of compelling campaigns we've done. And I'm like, that's the future. Mm. Starting with the entertainment proposition. So you're not asking people to, you know, if they're going to skip it, you know, yeah. if you know, if I'm interrupting whatever they are watching and yeah. not mad at my brand, I wanted them to feel like they could should pay for this content. Yeah. Right. And I knew that that would be the future. So, so once we had a really great shoot there and I met the team, I was like, that's what I want to do next. Mm -hmm. So while you've been there, I mean, you guys have had such an amazing run. Um, you think about the shows that have come out of there, Cobra Kai. Um, one of the biggest ones that I know the culture was excited about was Bel Air, yes. right? Tell me what it was like um, touching Bel Air. Um, did you guys do anything special? Is there anything that you're excited about that was baked into the way that you built Bel Air, like for the culture? Um, talk to me a little bit about that one. Man, I'm so proud of Bel Air. Okay. <laughs> I grew up watching The Fresh Prince, right? Every episode, you know, I saw, I looked up to Will and 
I wasn't at Westbrook when this happened, but I followed the story of um, a young man named Morgan Cooper who had um, produced with his own money and shot at himself a trailer online for a dramatic reinterpretation of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And I heard Will Smith, he had taken like a maybe 50 pitches of people wanting to remake it and redo it. It was never right. Mm -hmm. And Westbrook was smart enough to find that young man mm -hmm introduce themselves, get him in front of Will, and probably within the next month, they were out in front of all the different networks pitching the show, Bel Air. And an and unheard of you know, deal, Peacock signed two seasons. Yes, so I knew coming into the job, I'm gonna get to launch Bel Air. Yeah, you know dope. what I mean? The, yeah, the show yeah. I grew up on, the, <laughs> the characters I loved, and this new, you know, and I knew Will would be a part of it, yeah. you know? So I'm like, this is why I came to Westbrook, and mm -hmm. I know this is gonna be one of the biggest things we do. And what was dope about it is that we have an apparel line called Bel Air Athletics. Yeah, yeah. So I knew we were going to be able to take our apparel line and infuse it into the show and, and then create um, products that we could sell outside of the show. Mm. Um, I knew that we would be able to bring in other brands that wanted to connect with the, the, the talent there, both behind the camera and in front of the camera. So I was able to use my expertise to bring along brands to partner mm. there. Um, and I knew it was going to be a hit, you know, what was scary is all these other remakes on all these other, you know, channels started coming up and people were getting tired. Not of Fresh Prince remakes. remakes, just, okay. You like know, you had, Roseanne Barr comes back. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, all yeah, your yeah, old yeah, schools, you know, sitcoms. And it felt like white America was trying to take advantage of yeah. our childhood. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So we had to fight against that sentiment. Um, but what was dope is we got to hire all black Crew, talk right? about it. So Morgan, black director, came on. He became the director of the first episode. You know, if you think about the old show of NBC, there was all white writers' room. Mm -hmm. Now we have all black writers' oh, room. I love it. Right. Uh, if you think about the costume designer from back in the day, the casting director, we were able to basically reimagine oh, all of it. that now through the lens of Black America today. The art that's on the wall, the music that's in the show. I mean, local designers, it was like it. a dream come true for me. I have a tattoo on my arm that says, be the change, mm. because I believe that it's my job to now paint the picture for what we can be and what we can do. And that to me was like the epitome of it. Oh man, Perfect I love example. it. I'm actually going to close out on Westbrook. I'm going to ask you one more question, but I'm going to close out on that because I love um, everything you just did there. And one of the reasons why I wanted you here is because you and I see the world so similarly, like this bet on creators, specifically black creators. Yep this bet on black people in front of the camera, behind the camera. I love that you guys were able to get all of that done with Bel Air. That's fantastic. And then the quality is top notch, right? Absolutely. Black excellence at its best, which is fantastic. Um, okay. I can't let you get out of here without talking about one thing. Every time I research everything that I see, you talk about, we need to add an M into DEI. You talk about um, during quarantine, you launched Monday mentoring. What's it called? Monday? Monday night mentorship. Monday night mentorship. That's so right. Let's talk about the genesis. Like, let's talk about what that is yep. and the genesis. Why did we need it? Absolutely. So um, right when the pandemic hit, I was at Lyft. Um, and Rideshare got hit really, really hard in the pandemic. So at that time, I had about 250 people on my team. Because of the pandemic, I had to lay off 200 of Ooh. them. And not only did I have to lay off 200, I had to do it on a Zoom 
Everybody had to be on mute, and I'm talking to 200 people, telling them why we yeah. they have lost their Hold jobs. Up. Everybody want to be the boss. Like everybody's talking about, like, but when you have those moments, and quarantine was that moment for so many of us, where you had to just cut people's livelihood off with no clue about when you were going to be able to bring folks. How was that for you? That like right. for me, it was one of the the hardest moments in my business career. Easily the hardest moment. Yeah. I had just gotten hired. I had just went out and uh, onboarded all these people, met them personally, talked about their future, what I was going to do for them, how I was going to help them. And now I'm looking them in the face, oh, telling yeah. them they got to go. That's crazy. I was depressed. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't even know what I had never realized. I'd never been depressed until that moment. Mm. I felt like I was depressed. And luckily, I have a good group around me that inspires me to action. Mm. So we talk and we'll complain, but it's like, next thing is like, what are we going to do? Which is why I got this tattoo of be the change. That's an action oriented word, mm. right? Do be act, say. And so, um, we just said, man, we got to, how are we going to help these people? Mm. We got to be there for them. you know, and he said, let's just do office hours. My buddy recommended, he's like, let's just find a day where we'll be there every day and just do office hours. So I said, dope. So I went on LinkedIn literally the day after I laid off those people. And I said, look, I'll be here for you. If anybody needs mentorship, if anybody needs help or support, I'm going to be here on a Zoom. And I put that out on LinkedIn, went to sleep, woke up the next morning with about 8,000 responses. Get out. The biggest response I've ever had on LinkedIn. I didn't know I even was connected to that many people. And every every response was, I want to be a part of Monday Night Mentor. I want to be a part of Monday Night Mentor. And I was overwhelmed. I'm like, oh my goodness, I, now I got to do something, right? And so what I didn't want is for it to be about me. I was like, I didn't want to like have this logo and all this other brand stuff and it be all pomp and circumstance. I'm like, I want to make it really lowbrow. You guys said it's Monday Night Mentors, and that's what we're going to call it. You named it. Monday Night Mentorship is going to be 530. And we just started off with um, 10 people that I knew. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, I can't do this by myself. Mm -hmm. I called on Jason White, mm -hmm. um, Melissa Waters. I wanted to make sure that, you know, we, we had a good representation of leaders. I also had um, a woman named Sari D, who is an executive coach okay. um, for women of color. And she's the one who helped me operationalize things because she had done executive coaching. So mm -hmm. she's like... Like you should have a mixture of your friends at the CMO level, as well as some executive coaches. So we can make sure to give tangible takeaways. Mm -hmm. um, and she really helped me set up the whole thing. And it's been three years now, every single Monday of the month, we are meeting and mentoring people, That's helping phenomenal. giving them guidance, giving them direction, sharing about negotiation, resume tips, how to, how to network, you know, That's phenomenal. everything that nobody teaches you or yeah. me, right? Uh, when you're coming up. Yeah, I'm a join. During um, quarantine, <laughs> I started a Monday prayer group. I do Monday prayer with a group oh, of men. Uh, you come hang out with me in that one and I'll come hang out with you in uh, the Monday night. Done. That's session. on tape. So <laughs> <laughs> do you, um, do you get paid? Is there is there money exchange for Monday night mentoring? So what we is did is it was free is for it everybody. For it is a business. So we started doing um, making it free for everybody. But then it got to be too big because I wanted it to be a two way dialogue. Where actually somebody told me early on, they're like, I mean, I, I've been in my company for two years and I've never had a conversation with my CMO. And now I have every Monday a conversation with, with five CMOs. CMOs yeah. Right. And so as the group got too big, got to be about 250, 300 people every Monday, um, we decided to create a smaller group and we called it Monday Night Mentorship Plus. Got it. And so we only did a, a, a fee so that we can continue to pay speakers and pay um, the mentors and so that you weeded out any 
yeah. knuckleheads. Yeah. Um, and that is, so we made a free one every, the first Monday of every month. The following two Mondays are our paid group of Monday, uh, Monday Night Mentorship Plus. Very dope, man. Look, man, I am, um, I knew I was going to be excited about this conversation walking into it. It's been thrilling to hear your story and your journey. I mean, there's so much we learned, like that people can learn from this conversation. We talked about the importance of the faith walk. We talked about the importance of a circle and having people around you who can speak life into you. Your story, you are the king of a pivot. It is like you locked into this thing that I have this creative genius inside of me that I want to unleash. And you just kept pivoting and pivoting and pivoting and pivoting until you could find... Are you there? Like, is, is Westbrook, is, is that type of space, a space where you're doing culture and content? Is, is that the space for Jabari? Is that the type of place Jabari needs to be? I think about, like, Batman's tool belt. It's a, it's a tool I now I have added to my tool okay. belt. But there's still room more for more tools, to man. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm still young. I still have so much more to grow. And the world of marketing is changing yeah. every day. Consumers are changing. And now that I've had this conversation with you, I think I should be thinking about the CEO seat, you know, I <laughs> I feel like that's where my opportunity to grow is now is really going from a brand leader yeah. to a business leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Let me know if there's anything I can do um, to help you in there. But again, King, thank you for making the time to come. Thank you for getting down here. It's hot. Y'all can't tell on camera. It's about 200 degrees in here. They can tell because we glistening. <laughs> we glistening. <laughs> we glistening. That's not Vaseline. That's <laughs> <laughs> thank you, King, for being here, man. I appreciate you for my showing My pleasure, up. man. Thank you for having me. All right, Let's do it again. Hey. Yes, sir. Opportunity is not equally distributed. To every black entrepreneur listening, I want to make sure you have the tools and resources you need to grab your next opportunity. That's why I'm telling you about the One Million Black Businesses Initiative. The One Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start grow and scale 1 million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field. From free business coaching to tailored training and an extended free Shopify trial. 
Shopify has made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says... The one million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Chart your own path for business success with the one million black businesses initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at Shopify.com slash black print, all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash black print.